0: Well, it's a a good problem that all kinds of seats open up when kids leave, Um, but it's also like as more come, it gets louder, and I have to talk longer so they can leave, right? It's a great problem. It's a good problem. But I was thinking about kids this week, and I was thinking about how, do you ever look in the mirror and see something you didn't expect to see? I know, none of you do that. I mean, like I looked the other day, and and, uh, I saw a zit, and my kids said to me later, Dad, what is that thing on your face? Um... But also, I I found myself a few weeks ago, I didn't have my contacts in or I wasn't wearing glasses and I'm looking in the mirror and I saw something white and I'm trying to like get it out of my hair going, what is that thing? And I kept doing it for about 30 seconds and I finally realized, I went and grabbed a pair of glasses, like I'm afraid I know what that is, it's just more gray hair. Um, But have you noticed that you look in the mirror and you see something you don't expect to see, right? Rarely does that happen, but we all kind of wonder about those moments, but it wasn't that long ago. I think we were sitting on the couch in the morning and um, my wife said, Isaac and I were sitting reading, I think both of us were reading different things, and she goes, man, you guys even sit the same, right? Like, your posture is the same, you walk the same, you act the same, right? Like, he's like a mini you, and, and mostly I think that's pretty cool, right? If your kid's kind of like you, except then I had this thought as he left for school, what parts of me is he going to reflect? The best parts of me? Or the worst parts of me? I don't get a pick, unfortunately. That's not how that works. And so I began asking myself this question, what are the parts of me that need to change so that if my son or my daughter become my reflection, then I'm like, I'm happy with that reflection. But what are the parts of me that if they reflect, I'm not going to be happy with what I see? And so I've been thinking about that this week as I think about this question that you and I have to answer What do I reflect? What do you and I reflect in our life, in our home, the way we live and speak and act? What do we reflect? And is it what we'd want others to reflect? Or do we recognize the areas where we go, ooh, God better do something in me. And so I've kind of been praying the last few weeks about God, help me to see myself clearly and understand who I actually am so I don't live into that way that I would want my kids to be. Because the truth is, I know that my kids are going to reflect me. The good and the bad. So I hope it's more good than bad. So thinking about that kind of picture of what do I reflect is a helpful thing as we think about the book of Revelation that we've continued to study and we've continued to talk about. We're looking at these seven churches that, that... John writes to and shares the words of Jesus to these seven churches in Asia. And so each of the churches, right, he's writing. And so it's helpful to think about reflection because the question each of these churches is trying to answer is this. Are we reflection of God and his kingdom or do we more reflect the empires or kingdoms of our world? Which one defines us more? And so Revelation really is this idea that we get to go look into a... What's it look like to think from the perspective of the divine in the first century world? And so this letter to seven churches is written to the angel of the church. Right? Bear with me for just a minute. All right? It's probably not most, almost every scholar. I'm sure there's one out there who doesn't agree. But, but pretty much all of them are unanimously in agreement that it's not like some floating angel out there that there's writing to. But the idea that every church, every local church and every community has its own kind of like ethos or personality or spirit of a place. And so it's created not just by like a singular person, but by the collective of the whole of the people. By the music they sing, and the teachings that happen, and the way they fellowship together, the way they're nice in their community, or mean in their community, the way they're faithful to God, or not faithful to God. And so each church creates its own spirit. So you and I, collectively, we create the spirit of the place. The angel of the church, if you will. And so the point is this, that John's writing to the the spirit of the church, going, here's who God sees you as, but what might happen if you were more faithful to him? All right, last week we talked about the, the church in Smyrna, which is actually one of the two churches that was doing really well. Uh, not so today as we talk about the church in Pergamum, but what I'll say is this, the overflow of the reality of what God is saying to the church probably is helpful for us to think about who we are. If John was to write a letter to this church, what would John say? What would be the words of Jesus, the words of affirmation and and applause and appreciation? And what would be the words of critique and concern? What would he write to you and I when we think about this? And so each of these spirits of the church right, is kind of in contrast to the principalities and powers at work in the world. And so we're trying to wrestle with this. What does it look like for the church to be the kind of place that begins to live out God's unique will in the world. And so John writes to actual people in actual places about actual things that are happening. And so we get to kind of listen in. And so sometimes we read the book of Revelation with all kinds of weird things. Uh, Throughout the book, we, we kind of make these connections that when it talks about Babylon, it's talking about Rome, it's talking about the idea of empire, it's talking about these kinds of things. And so the seven letters to the seven churches, that are, so, the churches are called seven lampstands. stands they're light to the world. And it even says to the, one of the churches, if you're not faithful to me, I'm going to take away your light. You're not going to be my church anymore. And in fact, that particular church, uh, Ephesus, there, there isn't a church there today. So what's it look like for us to be faithful so that we are, truly are the light of the world? And so we get to listen in. But it's incredibly helpful to understand each community. So Pergamum was an actual place in Asia, and it's important to understand it was considered the capital city of the province of Asia. And Adelaide um, was a kingdom there, and the king, when he was dying, he willed the kingdom to Rome. Now you might say, well, why would he will the kingdom to Rome? Well, because he knew that if he didn't will it to Rome, Rome was going to come in and conquer it anyway. And so why why not just eliminate the bloodshed from his people? And so the kingdom was given to Rome and to the Roman Empire. And so Pliny, the Roman writer, called the city the most famous in all of Asia. And it wasn't famous because of the port cities like some of the others we've looked at. It was famous because it had a library of over 200,000 books in the ancient world. It was also famous because, right, we, we know that books now are on paper, but they used to be on parchment, like you make scrolls on parchment. It was one of the main producers of parchment in the ancient world. And it was also... A religious center. Right? Maybe you've seen um, on like, like EMTs or paramedics, they have the snake for the medical sign. You guys know what I'm talking about? Well, here's part of why. Um, the goddess, the god of, the god, I'm going to say this wrong every time, but Asclepios was the god of healing. And so the serpent represented the God of healing, and so you would go to the temple, you go to his temple, and if a snake were to touch you, it would be as if you would be healed, right? So that that was an important thing for them. So that's what the snake has always meant. But it also was a place of massive Caesar worship. When the kingdom was given over to the Roman Empire, they bought in hook, line, and sinker. They were going to worship the goddess of Roma, the spirit of Rome, and they were going to worship that. And so they had a... In the city of Pergamum, there was an Acropolis up high with temples. The Acropolis was a 1,000 feet off the ground, had temples to various gods and goddesses. And so Pergamum was a city that was proud of their history and their people. And the church was trying to thrive in the midst of all that. And here is what John writes to the church in Pergamum. says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And one of the cool things that John does throughout his letters to these seven churches is he connects things that happen in communities with what he's trying to articulate, right? I'll just talk about the one at the very end. He says, I'll give you a new white stone with a new name written on it. Well, in Pergamum, lots of people would have an amulet, or like a lucky charm, if you will, and it would be a stone, and you would write a name on it, and you wouldn't tell people what it was because you would lose the good luck of it. And so what he's saying is this, I'll give you a stone, and in other words, I'll give you new life if you're faithful to me, so you don't need to have your lucky charms, right? You can just, and I don't mean the cereal, I mean like a lucky charm like you put in your pocket, right? But like a lucky charm, you don't need that, just have faith in me. And it begins with this picture, though, of Jesus with the sword, and it's really this idea that what happens if we're half-hearted spiritually? We're kind of in, but we're kind of out, right? The temptation as Scott Daniels would talk about, the temptation for the church in Pergamum was a spirit of accommodation. In other words, how much can I be like everybody else and still be Christian versus how much can I be like Christ? That's the question they're wrestling with, right? It's a question we probably wrestle with if we're honest. How much can I be like Christ? most of us probably ask the honest question if we're serious with ourselves. How much can I do whatever I want to do and still be a Christian so I can get the good part at the end? And when John's saying to the church in Pergamon, listen, you're walking a slippery slope. If you continue to walk in this direction, Jesus sees right through, like the word of truth sees right through that. And so he writes to the Christians there that says, um, Hey, listen, I know what you're going through. I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. What I will say to you today, don't worry. I will be near to you. But Pergamon was a unique place. It was probably the place where it says multiple times, right, Satan's throne. You're like, what does that mean? How about this? It was a place where occultic practices and worship of Rome were so great it was difficult to be Christian. That's the point he's trying to make. And so what's that mean for them? If we we're worshiping the emperor, worshiping Caesar and all the gods and goddesses, is there room for someone who says, hey, what if there is only one God and his son is Jesus and the spirit is present with you and so you can worship no other gods but that? Well, that's not really appealing in that culture. And so the church is trying to figure out how can we accommodate our belief that Jesus is the resurrected Lord? How can we accommodate that with the culture in which we live in which Caesar and the goddess of Rome They're central. And the challenge is this, one of the things I love that he begins with this, he says these words, you remain true in my name in the midst of this, right, my faithful witness in your city, even in the days of Antipas. And I love this picture that they're faithful where they are, right? Sometimes we buy into this idea that when when it's difficult to be Christian, we should just go somewhere else, or I just need to go someplace where there's more Christians, or. We just need to be more faithful where we are, and by virtue of our faithfulness, there might become more people who are followers of Jesus. It's not this idea that we buy into escapism, that we leave when things get hard, and it's not this idea that we become whatever the community is, it's this idea that we live in the tension of the in-between. And Christians are called to live in that tension, to be a witness where they are. And you're like, well, who is this guy Antipas they're talking about? Well, legend is that Antipas was the faithful witness to the church, and he was um, roasted like a pig as his execution. So what they say is this. We know even in the days of Antipas, you were faithful to not renounce who Jesus was. Even when one of your brothers was roasted alive like a pig, you were still faithful to who God is. Right? So he has these days. In difficult days, you were faithful. And there'll be a reward for that. But then he says some things that aren't so Good. Right, Almost the form of every one of these letters, except for the two really good churches, are, hey, here's the great things you're doing. It's like, it's like this writer took the classes. You know how you, if you're going to give someone critique, you start with the good things first, and then before you get to the critique, it's what the writer does here. Hey, here's the good things about your church. Here are the things I'm concerned about, but here's the good news at the end. Right? It's kind of you sandwich it in the middle. That's what he does in this letter as well. It says, hey, you were really good during the days of Antipas. However, you guys have allowed teaching of Balaam, right? And you're like, what? Who's Balaam and Balak? Who are these people? Well, there are numbers 25 and 31, and the scene is this, and I'll kind of set it up for you so you can understand it a little bit. Uh, the Israelites began to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and have all kinds of sexual relations with the Moabite and Midianite women. That's it. They were enticed to live and go, hey, we know God calls us to live a particular way, but we're going to choose to live the way we want to live, he also referenced the Nicolaitans, which were talked about in Ephesus a few weeks ago. And this was the same group who said, basically, I can do whatever I want with my body because it's not my spirit. So I can live how I want. It's fine. And so the challenge for the church in Pergamon was this. Hey, if you'll just eat whatever you want, have sex with whoever you want, it's okay as long as you still recognize Jesus as Lord. Here's the challenge for us in that. The Christian sexual ethic is unique. It's monogamous. It's Between a man and a woman, it's this unique thing that Christ calls us to in the church is wrestling with how do we stay faithful in the midst of all of this? What does it look like to be faithful in the middle of these things? How do I not eat meat, sacrifice to idols, or do all kinds of other things? How do I stay faithful in that? And so the church is wrestling how do we stay faithful to God in a culture that buys into all kinds of ways of living outside of what we know because this has been the temptation all throughout the scriptures. It's the temptation of the Israelites as they're led out of Egypt, right? You know the story, Moses just leads them out in the desert, they get out in the desert, and they're like, oh, can't we just go back to Egypt? We had food there that we knew, we didn't have to eat this manna stuff, we had meat, right? Like well, there's all kinds of complaining in fact, God calls them to be such a unique people. He says, hey, I want you to live so uniquely different that you're nothing like the Egyptians, the place that you left, the empire that you were a part of. I want you to live nothing like it. But this is the temptation to always compromise with what we're supposed to do with what we want to do. It's not a new phenomenon. In fact, I'm going to mention it this way, right? Um, there's this, we're going to read two different passages, one from Deuteronomy 17, right? I, I know I pick on Solomon a lot, but he's such an easy target, um, and he can't defend himself, so it's kind of a bummer, right? Um, but Deuteronomy 17 kind of gives this list. says, when you enter the promised land, when you become God's people, here's what it says. When you enter the land your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be born from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, here we go, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And if I were to keep going to other passages, say, and he must not acquire large armies. And then Solomon, in all his wisdom, literally basically checks all the marks of what not to do. He does them all. Here's just one passage from 1 Kings chapter 10. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. What is he not supposed to do? Accumulate chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. What was he also not supposed to do? Become rich. And cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. Where were they not supposed to come from? Egypt. And from Kew, the royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver. And a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. I skipped over the verse, unfortunately, I didn't mean to. Verse 14, which said the weight of the gold that Solomon received early was 666 talents. Now, why is that important? Numbers are always important in Scripture. Often we misunderstand what the numbers are important for. But the number six 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 doesn't mean that every year Solomon got the same amount of gold. That's not what the author is trying to say in First Kings. That would be nearly impossible to ever get the exact same amount. He didn't have a salary. He didn't keep accumulating more. But the point of the author saying is, no matter how much Solomon got, it was never enough to satisfy. It's never enough. It's interesting, right? Fast forward to the book of Revelation, number 777, which is the opposite of 666 in terms of Jewish numerology, right? The point is this, that seven is the number of completion. It is enough. He writes to seven churches. There are seven lampstands, seven stars, or seven angels. Like, this is the full church. But what might happen? What might happen, like Solomon, if you begin to compromise what you know you're called to? I didn't even go into the idea that Solomon had... 600 wives and hundreds of concubines. It was just the opposite of what's a wise move. In fact, it's the opposite of what the king was told to do in Deuteronomy. Why? Because the temptation is to accommodate ourselves to the culture at large. The temptation is to compromise who God calls us to be with who we want to be. The temptation is to allow our stomachs, or sensuality, to drive our desires rather than to be driven in our desires by the very Spirit of God. That is not a new temptation. That is very old. So what does it look like to be God's faithful people in the middle of this? To remember that we are reflected as the image of God. We're image bearers of God. That's what it talks about in Genesis 1. We're creating the very image of God. Male and female, he created them. right? But, but so often we miss that. We're creating the image of God. And so I, 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 let me say it this way. I hate the phrase, I'm only human. I absolutely hate that phrase. Because, here's why, right? Bear with me for just a minute. I know some of you are like, I don't like this guy anymore because I like that phrase. Fair, fine, you can like it. I don't care. Uh, you're wrong, but you can like it. I don't like that phrase because what it implies is this is that my mistakes or my excuses or my sins are okay because I'm only human. But if I go back and read the Genesis 1 story, I'm created to be human. So what I might say is this when I live into my mistakes or my sinfulness or whatever it is, I'm becoming less than human, not more human. I'm becoming not quite who God created me to be. I'm not reflecting the image of God. I'm reflecting other images. And so I would say this, no, when I do those things, I'm less than human, not fully human. I'm not only human. I'm not even human. And so what might it look like for us to be reflections of the divine image of God? How do we do that? And this is what the writer says, repent. Turn from the life you have living and move in a new direction. To the local church, make sure that Believers are not compromising on the good news of Jesus. Trust that Christ is enough for us. Trust that there's no lucky charm that exists in the world, that if you have it, it will be enough, but trust that he will provide you with life. So what's it mean for us today? Don't look for an easier place to serve. Serve where you are. What's it mean for us today what if we bear witness no matter what's going on? So the question you and I have, are we good witnesses to who Jesus actually is? Make certain sure we live and teach and act in ways that don't lead other people to sinfulness? I'm quoting here because I think it's that good. Um, don't trade the false intimacy of sexual promiscuity with the genuine intimacy of a relationship with Jesus. It's one of the toughest things in where we live because what we desire, what we long for, what feels good, what we want may not be where God is calling us. And what does it look like for us to not trade that kind of intimacy for the relationship we can have with Christ? Don't live as a people who compromise with the world around us. Right? I've talked about the difference before and I'll mention it again because it's really important all throughout the whole book of Revelation The difference between the Egyptian exile of the Israelites and the Babylonian exile of the Israelites. It was not hard in Egypt to know that you were a slave. It was not hard in Egypt to know, I don't want to live like this. The challenge was, though, when Israel were exiles in Babylon, they treated them really well. They gave them good food to eat and good stuff to drink, They helped helped them in the community. They gave them good jobs. I mean, they were a good part of the culture in Babylon. So the temptation over time was to go, you know, Babylon and what they believe is pretty good. They treat me well like, I'm prospering here, it's good for me, and then we would be wooed by the culture in such a way that my wallet would be good, my table would have good food, my family's well taken care of, and in that I would miss the fact that at some point I compromised, I accommodated to the culture at large, and I became just like the people I lived among. And I no longer be uniquely defined by who God has called me to be. Right? In Egypt, it was not hard to know you're a slave. In Babylon, it was hard to know you'd been led astray. And the truth is, it's more like Babylon today than it is Egypt. That's the challenge for you and I, is are we reflecting that? Are we people who reflect the goodness of who God is? What are you and I reflecting? What are our kids or our grandkids or our neighbors or our coworkers, what are they going to say, hey, if I want to be like them, is it good or is it bad? Are we faithful witnesses to the goodness and love of Jesus? Or do we compromise to the world around us? Reflecting Jesus requires faithfulness. Reflecting Jesus requires faithfulness. If we do that well, what might, where we live, work, and play, what might it look like? What might our living rooms sound like? What might happen at our kitchen tables, or in our cubicles, or our desks, or in our assembly lines? What might happen in our classrooms? What what might happen if we live faithfully to who Jesus is? Is and we trust that He provides more than enough. We might just impact our community in ways we never thought possible. And maybe, just maybe, we become the kind of people who reflect not a spirit of accommodation or compromise reflect the Spirit of God in the lives of others, so radically defined by love. Now this morning, um, I'd love to, to have a great transition here. I don't. I'm sorry. So just like put a, put a period or end note on that. Um, which, like I said, there is no good way to transition out of this. I could pray, but then you'd be like, what are we doing now? Uh, we will pray, but not yet. Um, literally, pause. Sermon over, new conversation. Um we like I said, there's no good way to do this. I was trying to think how to do this. I got nothing other than to say it like that. Um we we've been talking about since the beginning of January 2020, what does it look like for us to bridge the gap from what is to what could be? And we said what might happen over the next 10 years if we did that. And so we've been continuing that conversation. In fact, we entered into a capital campaign in January of 2020. Worst time ever to start that, by the way. We didn't know that. We didn't plan on a global pandemic and not meeting for weeks and all kinds of weird stuff happening. Um, but we entered into January 2020 a campaign to say, what does it look like for us to bridge the gap from what is to what could be? And so we're going to kind of walk through some slides together today because we try to do an update regularly and want to just let you know where we are. And so when we started that in January 2020, uh, we, we had a three-year goal, right? Three years is up December 31st, just so you're curious about that. Why are we talking about today? Because it's almost over. Um, And so we had some goals, what we're going to try to accomplish during this time. And so we just want to kind of walk through those together and talk about what's happened and what could be. And so we want to talk about, I I don't, I don't even have these slides, so we're going to go ahead and go to the next one there. All right. From what could be to what is, how do we bridge that gap? We talked about a few key areas. um, And so here's the first one, right? There are cards available in the foyer and we talk about this again and again. And if you come to Next Steps class next week This is primarily what we walk through. What does it look like to go from where we are? I'm just going to briefly highlight this because I think this is incredibly hopeful and powerful if we want to grow spiritually, right? So we talk about there are two components. There's the personal, like, right, what do I do? And there's the community component, what do we do? And so how do we live these two things together? We think where we are spiritually, there's a gap from where God is calling us to be. So here's the gap. Um, In terms of worship, we want to express gratitude daily, personally, like, we can do that. What's well, like community-wise? Right, increase your monthly attendance. So if you come once a month, come twice a month. If you come twice a month, come three times a month. If you come every week, great job, keep it up, right? Like, um, we also think God calls us to grow, right? So read and study scripture personally. Right? That's, a, that's a valuable task to do. And then as a church, we'd say join a group. Pastor Matt's going to talk some about that at the end of the service today. There's some ways to sign up in the foyer. Come to men's group tonight if you're a guy, right? There are some solutions we hope you'll be a part of. Uh, we say, to serve. Well, how do I serve personally? What if you just showed kindness daily? And I can tell you one of the most frustrating things for me, a pastor, is if we ever go to lunch on a Sunday afternoon, and I can tell people went to church because they're all dressed up and they treat waiters or waitresses poorly, I want to smack those people. Don't ever be that person. <laughs> um, serve. Serve with the church. Find ways to be involved in the church or in the community. There always are options available you can be a part of. We always encourage people to give, be generous towards others, and then give to the church. Right? We, we think one of the, one of the things that I've become more and more convinced of over time is when people tell me how they're sold out for Christ, yet they hoard their money and aren't generous, they're not sold out for Christ. It's just not true. So uh, be generous. If you're not generous, I don't think you've come to know who Jesus is yet. And so I'd encourage you to live into that. And maybe just take one next step for you in that way. Share, tell your story, right? Well, some of you are like, well, how do you tell your story? Um, what if you just told people, hey, here's who I was. I came to know Jesus. Here's who I am now. I'm not perfect. I'm not all the way yet. God's still working on me. That's it. And what if you did it six times per year, right? That's not a lot. Six times per year. Not a ton. But did you know if all of us did that six times for a year, like, can you imagine the impact that might actually have? If 200 people, 200 people did it six times a year, that's 1,200 times someone told someone about Jesus. Let's just say, what, one-tenth of the time, someone goes, hey, I think I like that idea, I think I'm in. That'd be 120 people would have said yes to Jesus in one year because just we just told people six times. What if we invited people six times a year, right? We said six, not even 12, because you're like, ooh, I mean, some of you might need to meet some people, but, but you could invite six people in a year. If all of us invited six people in one year, could you imagine there wouldn't be enough seats for people? We'd just keep adding more services or figure something out because we'd have more people who come to know Jesus and come to know this church as their home. And so we would think God wants to bridge the gap spiritually. I'm going to quickly go through the next two... Um, Right, when we bridge the gap generationally, right, I, I'm, you can read that for just a split second, but one of the coolest things that happened for me as a pastor was even just last Sunday night, our guys group met. They were like roughly 22, 23, 24, 25 guys came, whatever it was. I didn't, I lost track. Um, but they were of all different ages. We had some guys in their early 20s, all the way to guys, I think we might have had an 80 year old there. So we, we literally were in the gap it. So the cool part of that is that when we engage generationally, we learn something from people younger than us and older than us because here's the reality um, we both need each other. So I'd encourage you to think about what it looks like to bridge the gap generationally. Um, going next one, like bridge the gap between justice and kindness. Micah 6.8 says, Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. There are gaps that exist in our community from what is to what could be, right? We could talk about mental health issues. We could talk about ways schools need more mentors. The list goes on and on and on. But what if Christ's church, what if we decided as God's unique people, what if we became people who went to bridge the gap from what is to what could be? What if we found ways to serve in our community and so we helped eliminate some of the issues that exist between justice and kindness? Um, we want to mention the, a part of that. Uh, we, we want to go on mission trips to change the community. Right? We gave a, an overview of a trip we on the summer if you have more questions about that, we're going to take another one in a couple years. We'd love for you to be a part of that as well. But here's where we are. So we have raised $84,619 as best that I can guess. Uh, we have spent $100,000, just so you know. We spent more than we raised. You're like, how does that work? We did have some money in savings to offset some of those costs. But why am I telling you this? Um, we still would like to raise $150,000. I don't even know if it's possible. Like I said, we started this in January of 2020. We didn't plan on tumultuous economy or a pandemic. And so we're going to celebrate some stuff here in a minute. So I want to mention a couple things about ways you could participate if you choose to. Um, by the way, we are always transparent. Our finances are posted down the hallway. You can look at them every month. Uh, we post them every month because we don't want to be secretive here. Um, the other thing is, we know some of you are, are not sure how you want to give or if you want to give. But... In the foyer, you'll notice a big chart that has all these numbers on it and pieces of tape over them. Those represent people giving that amount of money. And so like you go, well, you know, I, I know someone gave, I'm going to mention someone gave $10,000. A couple of them did actually, right? How come there's no $10,000 marker? Well, we did the math and divided up and figured out where we could put all those little pieces of paper. So those represent dollars that if every do- one of those was covered, then every dollar amount would be funded. So does that make sense? Okay, um, But here's what I want to talk about. I want to celebrate something right now because I know it says we raised roughly $84,000, but I, you don't have this note, but I want you to know this. From our initial estimates from the projects that we were going to complete that we actually completed, we saved, and we have to, this is a guesstimate because we can't figure out for sure, between $17,000 and $38,000 because we got a good deal or because we did the manual labor. So of that $100,000 we spent... Right? We saved another $40,000 in what we would have spent because our people did the work. That's, a, that's pretty cool, by the way. Yeah, I, I, I ordered pizza a couple times. Um, but that's what's happened so far. So we've made 40% of our goal. So in fact, we could even argue for more and you go, well, what's next? So let's go ahead and show the, the next slide. Um, and so he's going to scroll through some slides. I'm going to talk about a story, two stories of giving while he scrolls through these for a minute. Uh, one, I went on a golf trip last year. And on the trip, um, a guy who had done pretty well financially, sold a couple businesses, was just, just talking about how he tries to live generously. Uh, he set up a trust. And he said, I wish people were just honest in their asks. I wish they would just say, what do they want? And so I was like, alright, well, you know, we're trying to raise like $40,000 to offset some costs about a couple of projects and, you know, and so over the next two years so if you, you want to give to that, you're more than welcome he goes, yeah, exactly like that and I was thinking, no, I meant it like, I wasn't like joking I was serious, I was asking so I called him a week later, I got his phone number and I called him and I said, um, hey um, I was serious about that conversation we had and he's like, well, um how much? and I told him, he goes, I'll give you 10000 Okay. What he didn't know was that very week it, we had three furnaces go out that same day um, and that was a long term we knew we were going to have to upgrade heating and cooling stuff as a part of a projects so he gave 10 grand so I come back I tell someone from this church that story they come into my office three days later and they go okay I'll give the other 10 to cover the rest of the project so I say this say like hey you may not have 10,000 to give I don't that's okay but you can give what you can give Right, don't don't be feel like it's never enough because here's the thing: it the church, local church functions. At least this local church functions because lots of people are generous, not because one person is generous. And so we do this together. It's a collaborative effort. Right? You saw how many kids left this room. Right? At the best Sundays, well, between fifty and seventy-five kids here on Sunday mornings. Um, we do stuff for kids every week. We think it matters. We invest full time. Youth and children's pastors, because we think it matters. We want to invest in families, and we want to invest in little schools and communities. And so um, we think that matters. So um, here's why. We do believe God is for you. And he's for this community, and he's for your family, and he's for your future. We believe in a God who is not just against stuff, but is pro-stuff. He calls us to unique ways of life. He wants us to be engaged in ways of doing ministry and worship in our communities, and that matters. But we do it together. It is a collaborative effort that requires all of us. It is not one of us, but it is each of us. And so these are just pictures of what's happened, right? And I'll just give a quick rundown. And these are these two documents are posted in the foyer. You can look at them to see projects that have been completed and what's left. Um, Here's just a brief Run through. You've seen many of them, right? The building exterior has been painted. New inserts for the sign. Parking lots been redone, which ironically is going to need redone again. That's how parking lots work. Um, we've replaced multiple air conditioning and heating units. We've redone the sanctuary lights, or chairs, or carpet, or platform, or painting, or shiplap. That's or TVs. That's all just in this room. Um, a lot has been done, and you saw so much of that work. We've redone children's classrooms in the basement. We paid off over $1.2 million in medical debt for those in our state. Um, right. One of the unique problems we had was we, our goal kind of long-term was like, how can we partner with community organizations to do some of that stuff? And then COVID hit, and then we were like, well, how do we do this? What's it look like for us to do that? And so that was one of the options we came up with. It was basically $12,000 we raised that went to eliminating $1.2 million in medical debt that we were able to partner with. Um, so we have done some really cool things. But you're like, what? what it was, if we do raise the rest of that money, what's it going to go towards? It's a great question. So the biggest project, if it were to happen, it'd be great. We get it, may not. Like we said, we want to celebrate what has happened, but but wouldn't be honest about what could happen. Um, our gym was built in like 1986, I think it was. Someone can correct me, 86 or 88. I've never gotten a, a straight answer. Um, so 1986 or 1988... But it needs renovated at some point in the near future. And so that's on the very short list of you go, what would it cost? Just to replace carpet on the walls in that room in there and the floor would be between 30 and $50,000. Just so you know. We think that's a project that matters, right? If enough came in, we would actually, we'd love to do something like this, right? What would it look like for us to create a space where people in our community can come and their kids can find something to do in the middle of winter or like for us to open up space to our community in uniquely different ways to be a benefit to them as a whole. Right? What, not, not what we can, can we have for us, but how can we give stuff away? Right? There's some other projects that we're going to have to do. Like our uh, weird thing, lighting system in here is going out. It's electric stuff we're going to have to replace at some point. It didn't work this morning. Go figure. Um, there are all kinds of stuff that that just has to replace over time. That's just general maintenance, some of it. But we're going to make one last push between now and December 31st. If you feel led by God, right, I'm not trying to guilt you, right? We, I will guilt you in terms of, I think everyone's called the tithe, period. If you love Jesus, I think that's true. But this is above and beyond that. And so I get maybe you can do that, maybe you can't. I don't want to guilt you today, but I do want to celebrate what has happened. And if God is the one who lays it on your heart, not me, for you to participate in this, I would encourage you to do so. And here's why. Because my dream at the end of this decade is not that it's for me, but what—and I'll even quote this. Right, it was incredible to watch the way God moved in the people of this church. It was incredible to see their generosity, their spiritual growth, their passion for Jesus and people. I want to live and love like them. All right, that's my dream—that my kids and your kids and grandkids and kids who are not yet a part of this church—that would look back at this particular church and go, "Hey." I don't know what it was, but man, I watched people live sacrificially and selflessly and with such great love and generosity that it has changed who I am because I was shaped by them. That is the kind of legacy we want to leave our kids and our grandkids. That has eternal significance. The way we live is a reflection of our love of Jesus. And so we live into that. And so what I want to say to us today is this. Um, At one level, we want to celebrate what's happened, right? We we do. I don't want, don't miss that. I'm so incredibly, when COVID hit, I didn't think we would accomplish any of the stuff we did, by the way. Just want to be clear. Um, And so God was more faithful in that than I ever thought possible. But forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Here's what I have come to believe. God will show up and do things that we never thought possible if we're just faithful. But it takes you and I together. So just a second, I'm going to pray. Like, that's it. There's no, like, plea, no fill out a card, no, but if you want to give, give. You can give. We'll take it. For, and you just write Bridge the Gap if you just choose to do so from what could be to what is. And so we won't ask after January. Right? We won't ask again. Like, we might someday in the future, but, but that will be the end of this ask. And so here's the invitation, that We want to be a church that is so for our community, that we believe we're for the lake shore, that God is so for them that we are too. And so our goal is to create spaces and environments for them, for those who don't yet know Jesus, and for those who do, to grow more fully, to bridge the gap from where we are to where God is calling us to be. And so this morning, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing the song, God of the City, because we believe that it's his city, and we want to live as his unique people in the world. And so we do believe, we hope, and we trust that the best days of the church are not behind, but the best days of the church are always to come. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together this morning, for the way you love us, for the way you come near, for the way you desire for us to be your unique people. And we know, we know that you desire for us to go from where we are to more like your son Jesus. So help us. Help us to be the kind of people who don't accommodate or compromise when it comes to our theology or our faithfulness. But help us to be the kind of people who are so gracious and loving and kind. And when we talk about a God who is for other people, they, people come to know that because we are so for them in the way that we live, and the way that we love, and the way that we care. And so, Father, this morning we ask that you might help us to become more and more your church. As we think about the idea that we have our own angel, our own spirit, if you will, that, that you would speak to the spirit of this church and it would be one that would be centered in knowing your son and living in such a way that others would come to know him as well. So, Father, we ask today that you might help us become more and more the people of God you have called us to be. Defined by Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray.